When Hollywood sets its sights on creating a new film or television show based on the Tudors, it is often the story of Anne Boleyn that we see played out, or at least Anne is depicted as the most significant of Henry VIII's wives. In fact, I would say with some confidence that more films, TV shows, books and plays have been made about Anne Boleyn's life, or at least have Anne as a very central figure, than the other five wives of King Henry VIII put together. Firebrand, which is due for release later this year, tells the story of Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's sixth wife, but this is the first time a film has been made dedicated solely to a wife of Henry VIII that isn't Anne Boleyn. Quite simply, Anne stands out. But why so? Why is Anne Boleyn covered so much more in film and television than the other wives of Henry VIII? In this week's episode of The Tudor Chest, the podcast, I'm going to examine the key depictions of Anne Boleyn seen on screen, review their quality and accuracy, as well as providing some of my own takes on the different depictions. So stay tuned to find out what I liked best and who, for me, did not deliver. Welcome back to the Tudor Chest, the podcast, episode four, Anne Boleyn on screen. I can't think of a better way of articulating how Anne Boleyn's significance is treated by the public and the entertainment industry than by referencing the absolutely superb West End and Broadway stage show, Six. For anyone unaware of the show or who hasn't seen it yet, Six features the six queens of King Henry VIII competing in a singing competition to determine which of them suffered the most by being married to the king. The show is camp, enormously witty, and actually has a phenomenal amount of historical accuracy woven into the lyrics of the songs. Before Anne Boleyn's big number, called Don't Lose Your Head, the other five queens sing a short introduction to her, which I will play now. That short introduction tells us everything. Anne is the most exciting of the queens, the other queens know it, and she is the one the audience is the most eager to hear about. Even in series which tell the whole story of Henry VIII and his many queens, the character of Anne Boleyn is invariably given greater prominence, sometimes through a bigger name playing the role. I would say the most overt example of this came from the 2003 miniseries Henry VIII, starring a very cockney Henry VIII, played by an otherwise superb Ray Winston. Anne Boleyn is played by Helena Bonham Carter, 
a two-time Academy Award nominee and fully-fledged A-list Hollywood star. Amelia Fox, who played Jane Seymour, is undoubtedly a successful actress, as is the then-unknown Emily Blunt, who played Catherine Howard, but neither at the time were close to the same notoriety as Bonham Carter. Of the six actresses, she was the most well-known, and she was cast as Anne Boleyn. She also received star billing alongside Ray Winston. The producers clearly knew that they needed a big name for Anne Boleyn, therefore also suggesting that to them, her part in the story carries the most weight. One of the other parts of Anne's story is that she often turns up as a reference point in film and television not set in the 16th century. Many have spotted that a portrait of Anne Boleyn hangs on the walls of Hogwarts in the Harry Potter film series, for example. In fact, there are actually two portraits of Anne at Hogwarts. The more well-known one is based on the National Portrait Gallery image of Anne, probably the most famous portrait of Anne. And the second is based on the Holbein sketch that's now held in the British Museum. Anne is also mentioned twice in the superb Netflix original series The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, a more grown-up and darker take on Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which aired in the late 1990s. In the show, Sabrina is performing exorcism rituals and calls upon the names of famous historical fallen witches for guidance. Both of these productions clearly reference the unfounded accusations of witchcraft that have plagued Anne for centuries. But as a reminder, folks, Anne was never formally accused of witchcraft, despite people repeatedly suggesting otherwise. After Anne Boleyn's downfall and execution in 1536, her reputation was considerably tarnished and would remain so until the accession of her daughter Elizabeth in 1558. During her daughter's reign, the general view of Anne Boleyn softened considerably and she would grow to be viewed as something of a romantic victim, destroyed by a brutal tyrant for a husband. In the 18th and 19th century, she would be referred to as a strong-willed, engaging, beautiful and fiercely intelligent woman. She has also been described as a feminist icon, a woman centuries ahead of her time, and is generally viewed by academics and historians in a sympathetic light. Eric Ives, Anne's biographer, went so far as to call Anne the most influential and important queen consort England has ever had, this view being driven by the fact that Anne acted as the catalyst in what will become known as the English Reformation. There are, of course, some more critical observers of Anne Boleyn's story. These include George Bernard, who is, at least to my knowledge, the only historian who believes that Anne was actually guilty of some of the crimes that she was accused of, and then most notably the American academic Ruth Warnick. Warnick seems to believe that Anne was at the centre of an illicit homosexual clique within Henry VIII's court, and would have happily carried her brother's child if it meant that she could give Henry the much-desired male heir. Suffice to say, Retha's views are largely ignored by, by the vast majority of historians as nothing more than unfounded nonsense. Philippa Gregory, another one not known for huge historical accuracy, 
has certainly fanned the flames around the incest charge in particular. Her novel, The Other Boleyn Girl, primarily tells the story of Mary Boleyn and positions Anne as something of a villain who does consider briefly sleeping with her brother in order to produce a son before they mutually decide against the idea. This scene was included within the film version of The Other Boleyn Girl, which is another reason why the film is not well-liked or respected by historians and fans of Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn first appears in a speaking film in The Private Life of Henry VIII. The film was released in 1933 and was met with considerable praise at the time, especially for Charles Lawton, who would go on to win the Academy Award for Best Actor for his turn as King Henry VIII. Anne is played by Merle Oberon, and the film opens on the day of Anne's execution. Because of this, the performance is limited to just a few minutes of screen time, but even so, a couple of the classic Anne Boleyn quotes that we have come to expect make an appearance. These include Anne sans tête, which is French for Headless Anne, which Anne supposedly quipped would be her nickname, given to her by history, and also the famous I only have a little neck quote as well. Looking at the film now from a 2023 perspective, it is laughably melodramatic. It's very much a product of its time. Anne mounts the scaffold and she looks around and says, what a lovely day. (laughs) It's just a very uh, a very silly film in many respects to Arias now. And better still, there is an observer of the execution who speaks in an English accent that is so clipped that you would think you're listening to a young Queen Elizabeth II. And I'll play that clip for you now. As I say, the film was, of course, a product of its time, but is so far removed from modern-day storytelling that it's somewhat hard to take it seriously, even if things like the costumes and the acting were themselves very well done. Anne Boleyn would next be portrayed on screen by Elaine Stewart in the 1953 film Young Bess. The film once again starred Charles Lawton as Henry VIII. As can be surmised by the title, the film was primarily focused on the early life of Elizabeth I. Anne Boleyn would then appear in a supporting role in the 1966 film A Man for All Seasons, which tells the story of Sir Thomas More. In this, she was played by a then- relatively unknown Dame Vanessa Redgrave. Anne Boleyn would not appear as a leading character in film until 1969, when Anne of the Thousand Days was released. Starring Jean-Vierre Bujold as Anne Boleyn and the Hollywood titan that was Richard Burton as Henry VIII, the film is considered by many to be the most important and influential retelling of Anne's story. It's certainly my favourite by a long way. Bujold's performance was widely acclaimed. She would win the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama and would also be nominated for both the Academy Award and the BAFTA Award for Best Actress. She remains the only actress nominated for an Oscar for playing the role of Anne Boleyn. For me, her performance is the quintessential Anne 
and the one that I consider to be easily the best. Everything about Thousand Days from a production perspective is spot on. The costuming in particular was perfection and won the Academy Award in that category. There were, however, considerable historical inaccuracies in the storyline, but due to the strength of the cast and the story at large, these inaccuracies are overlooked or tolerated. Indeed, one of the biggest inaccuracies is, ironically, the film's greatest scene. I am talking of the powerfully charged meeting between Henry and Anne in the tower just before Anne's execution. She delivers a speech that absolutely tears Henry apart, hitting him where it hurts, knowing that she will ultimately have had the last laugh. Before you go, perhaps you should hear one thing. I lied to you. I said I love you, but I lied. I was untrue. Untrue with many. That is a lie. It is true. I was unfaithful to you with all of them. With half your court. With soldiers of your guard. With grooms, with stable hands. Look for the rest of your life at every man that ever knew me and wonder if I didn't find him a better man than you. (laughs) But Elizabeth was yours. Watch her as she grows. She's yours. She's a Tudor. Get yourself a son on that sweet, pale girl if you can and hope that it will live. But Elizabeth shall reign after you. Yes, Elizabeth, child of Anne the Whore and Henry the Bloodstained Letcher shall be queen. It's a huge, crowd-pleasing moment. And despite being completely inaccurate, for Henry and Anne actually saw each other for the very last time the day before she was arrested, you can't help but cheer her on. We must keep in mind that Jean-Vierre Bujold is acting opposite Richard Burton, a titan of cinema, as she utterly stole the show, and is, for me, the portrayal of Anne Boleyn to beat. Rather arrogantly, but I kind of love her for it, Jean-Vierre Bujold was asked by Susan Bardo, who wrote a book about Anne Boleyn, in an interview whether there was anyone who she felt could do justice to the part of Anne Boleyn. And she responded boldly by saying, no one, Anne is mine. The following year, in 1970, the BBC produced a miniseries called The Six Wives of Henry VIII, starring Australian actor Keith Michel as Henry VIII. Anne would be played by Dame Dorothy Tootin, and here was another example of Anne getting more screen time over the other wives. Despite there being six episodes, so one episode for each wife, Anne turns up halfway through Catherine of Aragon's episode. Bear in mind that Henry and Catherine were married for 24 years, and surely if there was anyone who would get more screen time, it should have been Catherine. But no, by the end of the episode dedicated to Catherine of Aragon, we are already at the point in which Anne is on the throne and has given birth to Elizabeth. Conversely, episode 2, Anne's central episode, focuses solely on her downfall, a period from start to finish of just 17 days. Hootin did an amazing job in portraying Anne, and would be nominated for a TV BAFTA for Best Actress. It isn't the most sympathetic portrayal, in fact at times her ambulance is downright unpleasant, but the trial scene was excellent, even if the execution scene that followed 
was appallingly inaccurate for, like the private life of Henry VIII, it included a block which famously was not needed at Anne's execution. Really, the main issue that faced the series is the obviously limited budget that they were working with, and this is most overtly seen in the poorly executed set design. At Anne's execution, for example, I can't really tell if she's meant to be inside or outside, or she's inside that's meant to look like outside. It's really odd, and if you see it, you'll know what I mean. Just two years later, in 1972, the miniseries was made into a feature-length film that was flipped to become Henry VIII and his six wives, rather than the six wives of Henry VIII. Once again, it starred Keith Michel as the king. And on the subject of Keith Michel, if we consider Jean-Vierre Bujold as the Anne to beat, and Glenda Jackson as the Elizabeth I to beat, then Keith Michel is, as far as I'm concerned, the Henry to beat. He was magnificent in the part. It's so, so good. A film depicting the whole of Henry's reign obviously has quite a mountain to climb as far as storytelling goes, and unusually, it is Anne Boleyn's story that is the most overtly trimmed down. While she is once again played by the biggest name amongst the queens, an excellent and stunning Charlotte Rampling, the film is unique amongst Tudor productions in that it chooses to highlight utterly inconsequential and unfounded beliefs about Anne Boleyn, such as the old tale of her having a deformed six finger, whilst almost entirely skating over the biggest part of Anne's whole story, her downfall. We see Anne flirting at a joust with Henry looking on in suspicion, and subsequently ordering her arrest. We then jump to Cranmer and Cromwell talking, and being interrupted by a cannon going off in the background that lets us know that the Queen is dead. Literally the entire execution scene was cut, and why the filmmakers chose to go down that route, I'll never know. But later on we see, for example, the execution of Catherine Howard. It was a really strange move, and I believe contributed to the fact that the film sadly, is quite forgettable. Although it feels like there's always some sort of Tudor drama being made, this wasn't actually the case, certainly in the 1980s and 1990s, for it wasn't until 31 years later, in 2003, that the Tudors were revisited in a big way, in the aforementioned two-part miniseries Henry VIII, starring Ray Winston and Helena Bonham Carter. Beyond the casting choice, which I discussed earlier, about Bonham Carter, the drama was another example of Anne Boleyn dominating the storyline over the other wives. Not that I mind, especially as Helena Bonham Carter is my favourite actress and she's playing my favourite figure from history. Practically the whole first episode focuses on Anne's story and obviously ends with her execution. Conversely, episode two covers all four of Henry VIII's final marriages in one sitting reviews of the series were highly positive, particularly towards Bonham Carter, even though she looks absolutely nothing like any of the portraits that we have of Anne Boleyn. As I hinted earlier, however, Ray Winston's overt Cockney accent, which he clearly did not try to minimise, was viewed by many critics as something of a detractor. In a fictionalised, albeit heartbreaking scene prior to the execution, we see Anne say a final goodbye 
to her daughter Elizabeth, who then begins to call out for her mother. The execution was also particularly gruesome, as it included, for the one and only time, to the best of my knowledge, the executioner lifting Anne's severed and bleeding head up to the crowd, something we know from the accounts that did not happen. In 2007, we were introduced to Natalie Dormer and the Tudors. The Tudors told the story of Henry VIII's reign across four seasons, with Dormer taking on the role of Anne Boleyn. This series is, once again, an example of Anne Boleyn being, without question, the most prominent wife in Henry's story. Their relationship starts halfway through season one, and is the dominant storyline of the whole of season two, with Anne's execution concluding the season. The Tudors was enjoyable, but was let down by significant historical inaccuracies and very poor costuming. Personally, I found it a difficult watch in many respects. I found it silly. I thought it was history dumbed down. And I thought a lot of the decisions they took were just absurd and strange, such as the situation where Henry VIII's two sisters emerged into one person. I just didn't get it. Critics were, however, very warm towards Natalie Dormer's portrayal of Anne Boleyn and commented that her exit left a huge hole in season three. Now, controversially, I myself did not care for Natalie Dormer's Anne Boleyn. She is a fine actress. I loved her in Game of Thrones as Marjorie Tyrell. Bit of trivia for you, it is believed Marjorie Tyrell is actually loosely based on Anne Boleyn. But in the Tudors, for me, Natalie Dormer just did not deliver. I don't think she looked right, she didn't sound right, and I thought that she really overacted a lot. And I know that I'm in the minority here, but yeah, I just, I struggled with that portrayal. What I would say as a positive, however, is that Dormer was adamant that Anne Boleyn be depicted with the long, dark hair that is so associated with Anne's iconography. When she got the part, she dyed her naturally blonde hair, the dark chocolate brown that we see in the series, but this very nearly cost her the role. For the producers, for some utterly absurd reason, had actually wanted Anne to be blonde, which, as you can probably tell from my tone of voice, is something that I would have found myself throwing things at the TV over. It would have just been so wrong, so I'm glad Natalie Dormer dug her heels in. There are a few scenes in the Tudors that I absolutely adore. And one of them, in fact, I think it's probably the smartest, and most elegant part of the entire series, is a very small, fleeting thing. And it doesn't even depict Anne Boleyn, but somehow she feels, her spirit feels, entirely present in the scene. And it does what no other depiction of Henry VIII in his later years has done thus far. It's in the very first episode of season four, which is titled Moment of Nostalgia. On the face of it, this episode's title is derived from a conversation between Henry and his closest friend, Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, about the fact that their youths are now a thing of the past. I, however, see the title more elegantly displayed in another scene. By this point, Catherine Howard is queen, and she invites Princess Elizabeth to court, where she is presented to her father. Elizabeth impresses her father with her poise and elegance, and for a fleeting moment, you can see in Henry's eyes that he is thinking back to her mother 
and how much he had once loved her. A true moment of nostalgia. It's beautifully done and highlights what I've always believed, which is that Anne was the wife of Henry VIII's who he truly loved the most. It's a controversial opinion, I know, but I've always believed that their relationship was somewhat like Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor's, one that was built on such intense passion and love that it could only ever end in disaster, even if there was a lot of love there, that classic thing of can't live with, can't live without. In 2008, we saw the release of a big-budget version of The Other Blend Girl. A low-budget version was released a few years earlier, which frankly looks like something a 14-year-old studying media studies would produce as a school project, and I say that as a former 14-year-old media studies student. This time, featuring Natalie Portman as Anne Boleyn, Scarlett Johansson as Mary Boleyn, and Eric Banner as Henry VIII. It is an undeniably sumptuous film, and sorry to bang on, but it has incredible costuming, really, really strong, and the set design is also beautiful. But the story itself is let down because it is based on the work of Philippa Gregory's own version of events. Now, she is a writer of historical fiction, but the issue with things like this being made into films is that people will then view it and believe that's the reality of the situation. With that said, Natalie Portman does a great job, and the overall look of the film is highly commendable. As I say, the costumes are incredible, they follow very closely what we see in portraits and from the accounts of the time, particularly the costume that Anne wears to her execution. But it's not a particularly warm depiction of Anne Boleyn. Again, because what underpins this is the story written by Philippa Gregory. Anne is cold and calculating. She briefly and seriously considers sleeping with her brother to try and fall pregnant, believing the king not to be up to the task. Mostly, she just comes across as an ambitious bully, and so the film is not well respected by historians and fans of Anne Boleyn. He is nonetheless bold and brave, and charges into her trial with gusto and arrogance. It is a sad day for England when nobles do not rise for their queen. And even sadder when that same queen is charged with adultery and incest. Charged is not convicted, uncle. Or is it in this court? In 2015, we were treated to the absolutely sublime Wolf Hall. A six-part miniseries based on the late Hilary Mantel's books, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, which charts the rise of Thomas Cromwell. I could be wrong, but I believe production of season two, based on the final part of the trilogy, The Mirror and the Light, is due to start soon. Cromwell is played by Sir Mark Rylance, viewed by many as the most gifted actor on the planet, Steven Spielberg being one such fan. He is undoubtedly my favourite actor. Opposite him, you had Damien Lewis as Henry VIII, and Claire Foy in what is ultimately her breakthrough role as Anne Boleyn. Foy would, of course, go on to play an altogether different breed of queen, namely Queen Elizabeth II, in the first two series of Netflix's staggeringly excellent The Crown. In Claire Foy's hands, as far as I'm concerned, we finally had someone to rival Jean-Pierre Bujold. Foy was superb. The typically hard-to-please Guardian heaped praise on Foy, 
calling her Wolf Halls perfectly complex Anne Boleyn. From the moment that we meet Anne in episode one, we are presented with a woman who is desperately trying to maintain her grip on an increasingly oily rope. Her behaviour is often cruel and spoilt, and this has resulted in many ardent fans of Anne Boleyn disliking Mantell's depiction of Anne, and by extension, Claire Foy's performance. I, however, see it a bit differently. With Wolf Hall, I think that the thing we always have to keep in mind is that we are seeing Anne Boleyn through the eyes of Cromwell. We are seeing his Anne, his take on her, and her sometimes bad behaviour is, I believe, driven by the monumental insecurity that she feels knowing that her position is so tenuous. And this is how I believe the real Anne Boleyn would have often felt, which is why I really liked the performance and felt that it was very believable. One of the other things that I love is that Wolf Hall's Anne regularly switches between speaking English and French to moment's notice. And that is something that's unique to Claire Foy's performance. And I absolutely loved it. It's done for dramatic effect. But as we know, Anne spoke perfect French and was known for her French affectations. This does feel oddly accurate. At Cromwell and Anne's very first meeting, we see this come to life in full force. And also here, for the first time, the nickname Anne gives Cromwell, which we hear throughout the series. Now, it's not technically a nickname, because actually it's his surname, but she says it in an overly affected French accent, so that it comes out as Cromwell. Lady Anne. Vous êtes gentil, hein? Alors, Master Cromwell. Make his case. You have five minutes. Otherwise, I can see you're really busy. Que savez-vous de la façon dont j'occupe mon temps? The Cardinal's the only man who can deliver an annulment from the Pope. He's the only man who can deliver the King's conscience and deliver it clean. If He's... the King wants it, and according to you, the Cardinal, formerly the chief subject of the Kingdom, wants it, then I must say, Master Cromwell, it's all taking a marvellous long while to come to pass. I've always felt that the core relationship of the books and the series is that of Cromwell and Anne rather than Cromwell and Henry, highlighting beautifully how Cromwell and Anne's once solid partnership gives way to bitter resentment, particularly on Anne's part, and ultimately we're left in a situation of it being either Cromwell's neck on the line or hers. What the series does wonderfully is present the respect that I suspect was there between Anne and Cromwell, even up to the very end. There's a fleeting moment on the scaffold as Anne is about to be beheaded where some of her hair flies up from underneath the linen coif on her head. Anne attempts to put it back down and we see Cromwell muttering quietly to himself, put your arm down, put your arm down. It's a beautiful scene. It's very well done. It's Cromwell wanting Anne to go out bravely and mirrors what the real Cromwell said of Anne after her death. He described her as having intelligence, spirit, and courage. Anne Boleyn was next seen on screen in 2021, this time being portrayed by Jodie Turner-Smith in a three-part Channel 5 drama simply called Anne Boleyn. Turner-Smith's casting caused considerable debate, owing to the fact that Turner Smith is a woman of colour. 
Now, I personally didn't have an issue with this. Anne Boleyn's story is not one about race. And ultimately, Turner Smith is an excellent actress. And there is also a precedent for non-white actresses playing Anne Boleyn. Merle Oberon was of Indian descent, for example. However, it was an undeniably bold move by the producers of the series. And I remember thinking at the time that it's possible that it was straying into the realms of well-meaning, albeit undeniably misplaced, diversity. Indeed, many black commentators were actually quite unimpressed by the decision because they said that true diversity would not mean forcing non-white talent into what is essentially an all-white story, and that surely it is far more important that we diversify our storytelling and tell the stories of less recognised figures. I think the thing that really stuck out for me, and it's sacrilege to say it, is that we simply didn't need another telling of Amberlynn's story. It's been done many, many times. And ultimately, the series didn't really have any purpose. I'm not really sure what the producers wanted us to feel. And a lot of the comments I was seeing was, why are we not telling the stories of the many incredible non-white queens, such as Queen Awa of Yemen, or Queen Take Renavalona I of Madagascar. These stories would have been fresh, they would have been authentic, and ultimately deliver diversity in a way that feels genuine. Unfortunately, the series itself was also not particularly good. It had flashes of excellence, particularly in showing how committed Anne was to religious reform. In fact, I would say that this series probably does the best job of depicting that part of Anne's story. But this moment of excellence, this moment of genius, was all too fleeting. And because, really, I don't think the series had any real purpose, even though it's only two years old, it's basically completely forgotten. And so, that wraps up the depictions of Anne Boleyn seen on screen. What I think we can learn from these, and feels true of Anne Boleyn herself, is the fact that she comes across as fierce not merely as a pawn for the advancement of men, but as a credible political creature, capable of as much as her male counterparts. Her tragic end, of course, plays into the drama, but I think she was ultimately a woman who sought out her future and was determined to be the mistress of her own destiny, which makes her feel quite modern, someone we would recognise today. Another word to describe Anne, especially as evidenced by her Hollywood depictions, would be camp. Now, I know that's a strange word to ascribe to someone from the 16th century, but let's think about it in the simplest terms. Anne is always viewed as seductive, as a bit of a passionate bad girl, someone who loves fashion, whilst her direct successor, Jane Seymour, is basically portrayed as the human form of beige. Anne was a woman who knew what she wanted, and she ran with it. And this is, I think, what we see so beautifully in lots of the film and television depictions of her. She was stylish, she was chic, elegant, learned, and ultimately determined to carve her own way in the world, despite living in a time of staggering patriarchy. I think what ultimately drives Anne's popularity comes from the place of her not being the norm. Anne was not the norm in her time. Indeed, this is what first attracted the king to her, and she utterly overturned everything. She did what no woman had done before. She superseded queen 
a real anointed queen with staggeringly better connections than herself, but she still managed it. Her tragic end at the hands of a man further solidifies her position as an icon. Here we had a woman who was determined to carter her own path, only to be cut down by a man so ostensibly inferior to her in practically all walks of life. Her many depictions over the years in film and television, I think, add to the overall narrative as Anne as a cult classic, purely by the actresses who've taken her on, Vanessa Redgrave, Helena Bonham Carter, Claire Foy, etc. We also have to be cognizant of the fact that Anne was the mother of Elizabeth I, viewed by many as England's greatest ruler, Anne, being Elizabeth's mother, strengthens that perception of an independent woman whose successes were not measured by the man she chose to marry, but by remaining firmly independent in doing things based on her own beliefs. With this episode, I wanted to try and understand why Anne Boleyn has always been the most fascinating of Henry VIII's wives, and thus is the object of the most attention. Ultimately, I think it comes down to the fact that it's in human nature to be a sucker for a good romance, but equally we can't look away from a scenario in which someone is going through a catastrophic fall from grace. Quite simply, Anne stirs the most emotion because her story is the most emotional. Couple that with the fact that she remains so mysterious, and you have the perfect mould for an ongoing enigma. Anne Boleyn is undoubtedly my favourite historical figure. She has fascinated me for years, and will continue to do so with many more, I am sure. Her wide-ranging portrayals in film and television have undoubtedly strengthened the public's appetite, and have undeniably been the catalyst for many people to become enthralled with both Tudor history and Anne Boleyn's story in general. For me, Anne is and will always be the most enigmatic and fascinating of Henry VIII's six queen consorts. I'm sure that many more depictions of her will make their way to our screens over the next few years. I just hope that they attempt to deliver something new and genuinely engaging. Next week, I'll be looking at the life of one of history's most tragic figures, Lady Jane Grey. So join me next Thursday to listen in. I also release a bonus episode each week on a Tuesday for followers of my Patreon account. To support the channel and get access to my Patreon content, please head to patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest. Thank you all and speak soon.